Health Tech listeners, I'm your host this week, Justine Abson. This is the podcast where we tackle some of the trending topics, ideas and best practice across health and social care. This week, I'm speaking to Sarah Jane Downing. Sarah Jane has been on a campaign journey for the last eight years following unnecessary breast surgery by Ian Patterson, who was found guilty of wounding patients with intent. Sarah Jane set up a group for fellow survivors in 2015, and they have been campaigning ever since to make sure what happened to them can never happen again. She has also been working with the Department of Health since 2020 to implement the recommendations from the Bishop's Bishop's Inquiry, which still has a way to go, but is a start to informing positive change. Sarah Jane, welcome to the podcast. It's an absolute honour to have you with us today. It's absolutely delightful to be with you, Justine. Thank you so much for asking me. So I'm going to go straight into, obviously, we've mentioned a little bit in the intro there about what we're going to discuss today. So can you tell our listeners a little bit about your personal experience and what happened back in 2014? Yes, of course, yes. Um, In July 2014, I received a letter from Spire Healthcare out of the blue uh, just to sort of say, please will you come in and see a consultant? And I was rather sort of like, oh my God, how and why? Um, But uh, it, it said, there were grave anomalies in your records and we want to see what happened. And this was referring to, um, I'd had um, a lumpectomy by Ian Patterson in 1998. Um, And so it was a long time earlier and um, it had taken a very long time to try to sort of put it behind me. So to have that bolt out of the blue suddenly was really, really shocking and I was really frightened and really unnerved about going to see them to find out just exactly what these grave anomalies were but uh, even more shocked and horrified when I got there and found out (laughs) because um, yeah because what had happened is at the time um, when I had seen Patterson he had told me um, very convincingly that I had um, I had a lump growing very rapidly in my breast and it was very dangerous and it was growing very quickly and it really urgently needed to come out. So I was very much in the position where I was absolutely terrified out of my mind and um, didn't really have any kind of idea that there was anything other than that is what I have to do. And I couldn't get a second opinion. I couldn't get him to do um, a a needle aspiration to check for cancer cells. He just told me it's growing very, very rapidly. And soon it's going to break the outline of your breast. So you're going to start to become weird shape. And at that point, once that happens, it's going to be very difficult to remove it. So it's best to have it done now. And to to find out in 2014 that all of this was just an absolute load of nonsense and that the lump that was removed was not in this absolutely desperate state uh, was absolutely beyond, beyond a shock. It was really devastating to know that um, all that I've been through was entirely for no reason whatsoever it was just um a regular benign lump as i've had before i think like you said as well you know you you had that in 1998 
And then obviously it's many years later um, that you kind of get told that as well when, you know, like you said, it it takes a long time. It, I mean, you never get over having that. I've got, I've got a friend that's that's been through it. Um, but you, you kind of start to live your life again and things like that. So I guess to find out all of a sudden after that many years to almost be transported straight back to that feeling and terror and, and everything else must have been horrendous. Absolutely. Yes, it was, it was such a shock. It was such a horrible, it was such a horrible thing to happen. It, it really did sort of hmm. yeah, push me right back. And, and yeah, I mean, absolutely. I think, um, so obviously you've, you've since set up a group for your fellow survivors, um, which I think is absolutely amazing, you know, kind of that, that turning that, that negativity side of it into trying to do something for, for absolute good and for, for positive change. Um, so how have you all helped, you know, use your own experience to try and inform this positive change for the future? Well, you see, at the time when I found out, um, the, they, there had been a recall of patients in, I think, 2002, 2003. Um, and those were the, the cancer patients that Ian Patterson had uh, worked on uh, in the NHS and at Spire Healthcare private sector. Um, but we had absolutely no idea that um, the anomalies in his cancer care, because he was doing this, this really weird CSM procedure which was absolutely not what anybody should have been doing ever. It was of his own invention. And so when those people were recalled, the rest of us who turned out to be the unnecessary surgery people, we had absolutely no idea. And it seemed completely unrelated. And so at the point in time when I found out in um, summer 2014, I, I spoke to a solicitor and found out that she had got a number of people who were in the same position as me, who weren't cancer survivors, but who had had surgery from Patterson that was unnecessary or wrongful or completely weird. And I very much wanted to reach out to them because I thought, you know, we're in this really, really peculiar position and there's nobody to help us. There's nobody for us because um, there was a group set up uh, that was set up for the NHS patients. But because we were private patients, we were supposed to have been told that we could join that group, but we were not. And um, obviously there are the, the, the um, cancer charities and the breast cancer charity, they had a group, but as we were not cancer survivors, we didn't think of trying to sort of join a group that, that wasn't, you know, for us. And so it was very much the need of thinking how many other people are in this really, really bizarre situation where you've just heard that all of the care that you thought was care was actually some kind of terrible other. Um, so it was at that point that I reached out to try to get other people together, just really to see if we could share our experience and support each other. So that's how it sort of started. And I think that that's the essence, really. Um, we try to sort of be there for other people um, within the group and to really sort of, I think so much has been, um, in a way, it's good to know 
that other people have had the same experience because I think one of the factors that was very very much a case for me and for many many others is that we were so shocked and so we felt so how was I taken in by this? How did I believe this? How was I so stupid? And that's the thing that has really sort of resonated very strongly with everybody. It's like, you know, why did I believe this? How did I believe this? And so that's one of the aspects that we've really sort of, um, when the, the bishop started his inquiry, it was one of the elements that I um, really spoke to him about you know that we wanted to be able to sort of reveal something of our own stories and to talk about what had happened to try to help everybody else to be like well you weren't a fool don't blame yourself what else could you have believed because at the time everyone was saying oh he's an amazing expert he's fantastic you know and everybody was saying at those hospitals everyone was saying how great he was and you didn't hear a word from any of the staff at either hospital, the NHS or the private hospital, saying anything other than, oh, he's such a nice man. So, good. Mm. so That's a really important point, though. I think if, you know, somebody looking at this, somebody reading the Bishop's Inquiry, anything like that, I don't think they'd automatically think about those sorts of feelings as well. Like you said at the very beginning, you know, there's the, there's the kind of the feelings that everyone will think of, like, scared terrified you know let down that sort of thing but like you've just said there's that side of it that almost makes you go what why did I think that why did I do that um you know and doubt yourself and almost blame yourselves that I think having that you know that um support network from other people especially as well you know some of you will have families that you can talk to and things like that but not everybody does as well so even just being able to talk amongst yourselves and actually everyone to understand that, you know, it's not silly that you're feeling like that. Everybody's kind of feeling the same. And, you know, this was someone who was in a position of power. So, and someone that you meant to trust. So why would you not trust that person's um, diagnosis or opinion? Yet, obviously, further down the line, I can totally understand why you would feel that way as well. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, it, it's it's been very powerful for us to share our stories with each other and with the inquiry, uh, because there were so many similarities. And this is this is a really really strange thing because of course on your own, because exactly as you say, you know, you go like I I, I went to my appointments with my sister. And, you know, th there were lots of people who went on their own, lots of people went with their husbands or you know, other family members. But generally speaking the person that you're with is someone also who is entirely new to this and who is frightened and emotional and really when the, the person is there on the other side of the desk you know with their little name plaque and everyone saying oh yes he's fantastic you just sort of like okay what do we have to do to get through this and uh, and that's it you know but um the, the similarities, the, the way in which he sort of said set things to people, that the the path of people's treatment, that there were certain sort of set ways that uh, that he did things, and there were certain phrases that we've sort of in sharing our notes we've we've found, you know. So yeah. there's this yeah something of a modus operandi. <laughs> 
Yeah, I can definitely, um, definitely imagine that when you're when you're chatting to everybody. Um, we've touched on the fact that you're, you know, you work in about with the, you've spoken to the, you know, you spoke with the bishops inquiry, um, and you work in the Department of Health to implement recommendations from this, um, which obviously looked at lessons that can be learned and how these can improve um, care by the independent sector right across the country. Can you tell us a bit more about this and kind of what you're what you're hoping for that will help provide a safer experience for patients in the future? Oh gosh, well, I I have very very high hopes. I have uh, I I have a dream. <laughs> I have a dream that good. everybody <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have a dream that everybody will be safe to have the correct treatment at the correct time by the correct individuals and uh, that everybody will have a really good, safe, positive patient journey. Uh, there's an awful lot that needs to be done to make that happen. And it's, it's really good that, um, as you can see, there were 15 recommendations from the inquiry. and. I really can't remember all 15 off the top of my head, but um, I, <laughs> I wish I could. Um, but um, a, a lot of them are really sort of surrounding. Um, one of the things that happened to most of us is that um, he rushed us forward into, because um, of course we're all aware of um, waiting lists and that there are, of course now, particularly post-pandemic, there is a lot of um, concern and fear about people getting cancer treatment, cancer diagnosis and cancer treatment in time. And this was something that at that point in time within our borough in Solihull, uh, there was a big waiting list for breast cancer patients. And so he very much played upon this and said, well, you know, if you come to me at the private hospital, I can make sure that your operation is done within the next 10 days. And so, of course, being told that it's growing rapidly and you're in great danger, you are going to move heaven and earth to get it done within the next 10 days and this is this is one of the, the pathways that he sort of ushered us down one of the things for the inquiry is to try to make sure that um, when the patient is given a diagnosis that is really really terrifying and life-altering they have enough time to stop and think to do some research, to seek a second opinion, to receive a second opinion, and to think things through and to plan. Because using that fear to push you further down the line, it allowed for you to not think of all the things that later on you're like, well, hold on a minute, how is this actually going to work? So that's a really key thing. And of course, communication between the private healthcare sector and the NHS sector, because we've also found, and this this is being worked upon, but it's not it's not finished. You know, it's it's, it's sort of happening, but not finished yet. Um, the, the obligations for people in the private healthcare sector are quite fewer than those in the NHS and so there was a lot of um, communication was missed where he should have sent letters to our GPs to the hospital consultants and so on and so forth should have been working in a multidisciplinary team but in the private healthcare sector he was just managing to skip all of this and so he was pushing a lot of 
his peers away so they didn't get to scrutinize his work on an intimate level, which of course was obvious for him. And so he's telling us, well, this is to make everything quicker and efficient and so on, but it's actually to push everyone into abeyance so they can't really scrutinize and see exactly what's happening. So communication is really, really vitally important. And one of the recommendations that we have um, we've put into place um, hopefully, really, in reality, is that um, any kind of appointment that you have, the, the consultant or the GP is supposed to, they're supposed to write to the GP and to the patient. So you should get a record of any consultation that you've had straight away personally. And it's, well, it's in place. It's very imperfect because there's an awful lot of letters that aren't reaching people. But um, it's, it's an improvement in the way that um, people are supposed to work. And I think that anything that can improve the, the culture within hospitals has got to be a good thing, because I think that you've got a real sort of barrier to, to change. Culture is set up in a certain way, and people like to work in the ways they work don't necessarily think about other ways <laughs> and of course when people are in a, a very high pressure situation people want to rely on well this is my path of efficiency so having extra things added in or new ways of doing things maybe not quite as welcome as they could be but um so introducing some of the recommendations into that situation it's it's there but it hasn't been perfected yet so <laughs> yeah we I mean we hear a lot of things about you know little little improvements and things like that and I think a lot of it is almost that baby step sort of thing but as long as we're going in the right direction and we're not going Absolutely. backwards then that's always got to be seen as a positive fit and you know you, you're completely right I mean we work across the whole of healthcare um, um, and health and social care. So we're, we're huge advocates for sharing information and making that journey the best it can be because the people that are at the forefront of it are the patients. And I think everyone gets into their own little silos almost and almost everyone has it in their head. But I think, like you said, when everyone's busy and everything else, they sort of forget that. So I think it's it was really important actually that the inquiry highlighted this um and you know patients want confidentiality but it was widely spoken about that actually by sharing the right information between people like gps and um, nhs and private um that obviously that quality of care that is then received is the highest it can possibly be so do you think that this has changed since the inquiry and do you, do you believe that if there was more openness and transparency when it comes to sharing the actual information um, it would definitely result in more prompt action being taken if anything like this was was sort of on the radar or happening. Yes, I do. Um, one of the one of the things um, there is um, there is a group. It's Finn, and um, I wish I could remember the acronym, but I can't off the top of my head. But uh, <laughs> the idea is that it is <laughs> it is looking at the consultants working in um, private healthcare. So that's definitely. <laughs> private healthcare um, is, is part of it. And um, so the idea is that if you are having a, a consultant recommended to you, or if you're seeking to have some a procedure that you need, um, because you need to schedule it, so you need to have it done privately to 
get it sorted. The idea is that you should be able to look up the consultants that you're in your area that are available and get an idea of would they be right for your needs. He was falsely representing what his specialism was. And um, I don't know how it was that the management at either of those organisations were happy to take him on, despite the fact that he wasn't correctly qualified for doing those procedures that he claimed. So I think that it's very important that we as patients, we know what are the qualifications of the surgeon? How many times have they performed that surgery? How good are they at doing that surgery? What actual training have they had? Because we've also seen in other cases, like the cases of the, the poor women with the vaginal mesh, We've seen that in some of those cases, some of those surgeons had had little more than a, an afternoon's tutorial about how to apply the mesh. And of course, as we have seen, with catastrophic results. So we need to know exactly, well, what is the skill level here? Is it just a tutorial or is somebody actually properly qualified? Have they got success? Are they actually very you know, good at doing this or are they barely competent at doing it? And so there's an awful lot of information that you really need to know. And um, so I would like for them to be putting far more on there. I think also it's essential that they display, are there disciplinary procedures pending against a particular surgeon? Um, are they being investigated for anything? And unfortunately, at the moment, I don't think that those are adequately or indeed at all displayed properly but uh, because one of the other aspects with our particular case is that um, Patterson had been um, responsible for a string of never events at his previous hospital and he was on disciplinary suspension when he applied to come over to the hospitals they didn't investigate they didn't check to see whether those disciplinary suspensions had been spent and um, they just granted him privileges and that was that. And so had they communicated properly with their colleagues, then they would have seen this. And hopefully they would have seen that he wasn't adequate to be put in that position. And that would have, you know, circumvented the problem for thousands and thousands and thousands of patients because it's five and a half thousand patients within the private healthcare sector. And, mm. you know, even more in the, the NHS. Yeah, I mean, we again, you know, communication is is so important, isn't it? It's and it's almost that whatever industry you're in, that communication. Every, you know, you talk to anybody, and communication comes back to the the forefront of it um, so many times. And I think that you know, it was it was mentioned in the inquiry about um, the clinical colleagues raising serious questions about procedures and medical practice back in two thousand and three, which I think we briefly touched on when you were saying about the the recall of cancer patients. Um, but nothing happened and he was still allowed to continue operating. So in terms of this sort of stuff, how important do you think it is that healthcare staff feel that they can speak up about concerns they have, maybe in particular the more junior members? And do you think there's still a lot to do in that area in terms of that open and transparency amongst the, the medical staff themselves as well? Yes, absolutely. Uh, yes, <laughs> yes, I couldn't agree more. Um, I think one of the things, uh, one of the the the, the um, things that the bishops' inquiry is to to 
trying to put into place is to make sure that multidisciplinary teams are used properly within the private healthcare sector as well. And I think it looks as though, you know, a proper multidisciplinary team um, would be absolutely the best way to go. But of course, exactly as you say, if there is somebody who is a very dominant character, who is very bullying, how do you make your voice heard when you are a more junior member of that team? That is incredibly difficult. And uh, so, I mean, they have put in place the Freedom to Speak Up Guardians, which I think is a great idea. Again, I'm not sure how effectively that is working, because in some of the reports we've seen more recently in Medscape, it looks like there are still some cracks in that system and things are not working quite as well as they could do. But I think it's absolutely essential that people feel that they can speak up and be heard equally. So I think that you, there does need to be a change in culture, as we were saying, where you can't just have it so that, you know, the consultants are the stars of the show. If anybody has an opinion that goes against their opinion, then be quiet, don't say anything. I, I think everybody is there as, as you know, they're all fully qualified clinicians. They all have their own specialism. They should be given equal say to say, well, look, from my perspective of my learning, my experience, this is what I think is happening. And that should be granted just as much uh, time and respect as anybody else's experience, because everyone is there to contribute together. And so I think that that has got to be looked at and hopefully with a, a better sort of teamwork kind of ethos that will be more shared information and shared communication because ultimately it's got to be how do we work together to give the best possible outcome for this patient absolutely and that should always be the the number one priority without a doubt i mean how do you how do you and your um fellow survivors feel about obviously the potential negligence of of his colleagues i mean obviously we've talked there about you know people are scared to speak up certainly were even more so um years ago and obviously you know now we've got the freedom to speak up we've got the whistleblowing protection act there is a there's more in place but there's still more that needs to be done um so how how do you feel about obviously he got imprisoned absolutely um but do you feel like they could have done more if they had seen these sorts of things happening I do. I, I, I do. I, I think one of the key things is um, the management in both hospitals, because um, in the private sector, it was actually said, um, one of the hospital managers said that they were loath to say anything because he was such a high service user, as in, because of course, you know the way that it works in private healthcare, it, it's pretty much that um, the surgeon is sort of renting facilities and the overarching company is not responsible for the outcome of what happens in those operating theatres and they have distanced themselves from those patients even though they're selling that service to the patient they are then distancing themselves and making themselves not responsible if anything goes wrong and um, they were well aware that he was I mean 
the, the time that you were supposed to take to do a mastectomy or a double mastectomy, he was doing it in less than half the time that is the accepted amount. And so anybody else who was um, within that discipline would have known that if he was doing an operation in half the time, he was not doing it correctly and it was not right. And so there would be an awareness on that kind of level. There was certainly, um, people were going in for mastectomies, but there was no histology. And so people would have been well aware that there were huge gaps and they would have been well aware that this was all wrong. And so, yes, there, there were many, many people who could have and should have said something a lot earlier and people who were on an equal level of status. And I can understand that if you are, you know, somebody who is junior or somebody who is, you know, just a nurse in inverted commas, uh, it might have been very intimidating and frightening to say something. But somebody who is uh, a fellow consultant, someone who's an oncologist, somebody who is within the same department, they are on an equal footing to say, well, hold on a minute, this is not how it's supposed to be done and you know could have and should have and again the management knowing that he was doing twice as many procedures as he should have been able to do within that time they would have known that they would have seen that and uh, they were well certainly with the private sector they were prioritizing profits because there were more patients being pushed through the books and didn't say anything because they didn't want to um, criticise or question somebody who was bringing in so much revenue. And again, I think within the NHS, as he was skipping through, you know, ticking people off the list on the, the waiting list, I think that they were quite pleased to see that he was getting through them and didn't question when they should have done as to how it was that he was doing it so quickly. But also, they would have seen how it was that um, more than 50% of the patients who had received his terrible CSM procedures died, and died really quickly. <laughs> so yeah. it's obvious. It's um, one of the questions we, we ask a lot of the time, um, obviously to do with um, incidents that get reported and things like that is, is understand the why as, you know, if you understand the why something happens, you can put things in place that prevents that from happening in the future. And I think in everything you've just said, it's almost like if somebody had asked that question, why is this, you know, why are these operations happening so fast? Why are we getting through those waiting lists so quickly? Why yes. is, you know, th this happening? You know, that, that three letter word is almost like a, that potentially could have been enough for more people to go, oh, well, actually... <laughs> Yes, quite. And also, why are all of the people who he has done, a, you know, a mastectomy on, why is it that they're having reoccurrences again and again and again? Because he did this procedure that was the um, cleavage sparing mastectomy. The idea was that it was to take um, a portion of the breast rather than the full breast to um, help the reconstruction but of course what it was was um, a, a time capsule of cancer reoccurring because he didn't look at the types of cancer that 
this was, you know, he did the procedure across the board, regardless of the type of cancer that the patient had. And of course, some are quite clean so that they could be removed with a margin. Others, of course, are much more disparate and can't be removed without you know, a much bigger margin. And he was just doing it regardless because the idea was that when that poor woman had a reoccurrence in a year or two years, then she would come back and he would charge her for another operation, another mastectomy. I mean, some people have actually had two mastectomies on the same breast absolutely ridiculous and so to know what the procedure was supposed to be and to see what was left and what was actually done really anybody would have seen that this was completely wrong it's um obviously in the in the inquiry as well if you if when you read through it and there's pages and pages of obviously patients um have been interviewed and the, the thing that I found most heartbreaking was obviously like the, not only is it the effect on the patient themselves, but the amount of people that the effect on their family, their life, their their everyday, if you like, and everybody else that was involved um, was just absolutely heartbreaking. Um, and there was a lot of people in there that had young children and things like that. And yeah, I just, I just can't even imagine how it, how it must've felt. And, you know, we've got, regulations and guidelines in place and yeah it just felt like everything was a bit disregarded um or ignored despite them being there that you know are there to keep patients safe at the end of the day do you think there's processes and procedures that have changed since this happened and can things like accessible data and things like that provide actionable insights that can prevent malpractice like this from potentially happening more in the future I do hope so. I mean, I think one of the one of the sort of situations that we're in at the moment, which is quite interesting, but um, I do feel rather anxious about it, is we've started um, since 2020 putting the recommendations into place, which is great. But it's how do we know that those are actually working? I'm, I'm very fearful that it's only going to be when something goes wrong that we'll see that although with best intentions, people have put factors into place, but, you know, I, I'm really frightened that it's going to be something else that goes wrong that will show actually they're not working as well as we thought. And so I, I'm, I'm very concerned to make sure that we have some kind of way of seeing good results and measuring that and making sure that things are working smoothly and um, so I have a lot of questions around that I'm not really sure about what we're doing and how we're going to be able to work that but I think that that is something that we've got to make sure so yes you know everything is a lot better and hopefully that is all going to work smoothly. But um, uh, we need to know and we need to be able to feel secure about that, I think. But I think changing the culture has really got to be something that is absolutely there so that people can feel okay to say oh do you know did we let's just check did we do that are we sure that we have made everything right for this patient 
Yeah, it's um, it's been able to evidence as well, isn't it? About you know, we yeah, we've put this in place. You can evidence it's put in place. You can evidence almost the the working practice, if you like, that if something's gone wrong, you know, working working through that. Um, and also going back to that communication side that we mentioned again, you know, something's happened. How can we stop it happening to someone else? How do we communicate that with the patient that it has happened to or the family of the patient that something's happened to to kind of assure them that it is not going to happen to someone else? And it's about that patient safety side of it. You know, the obviously there was outrage that, you know, patients weren't kept safe. You know, that is meant to be, you know, paramount. And we know it didn't happen. Um, we know that, you know, patient safety has talked an awful lot about at the minute as a, as a top priority. Um, and there are certain things that are being implemented across the healthcare system to make sure that that is the case. Um, but how do you think that the system can make this a number one focus? Because we do also know there's still a lot to happen to instill this as almost uh, the norm across healthcare. Absolutely. Well, I think one of the, the key things that really needs to be looked at in um, private healthcare um, is the question of practicing privileges. Because I think when you have that schism between the private healthcare company with the lovely glossy advertisement who are you know um, assuring everybody that they have world-class standards and everything is great and so you think that when you are purchasing private health care that is what you're getting but in actual fact you're only as good as the skills and the insurance of the practitioner who has been granted privileges possibly without any kind of real reason why they should be granted them then that schism is is a huge huge um it's it's an axis of exploitation and it's a great pit of danger and i think that is one of the key problems that um as my group of predominantly private healthcare patients that's one of the things that i really would like to see changed and closed off because um some of the some of the private healthcare companies um like the showen group are employing people and so therefore procedures done by those people are under the overarching protection of that company and um, everybody is working together so that if there is a responsibility, if there is a problem, everyone works together to fix it. Um, this this idea that you can supply a room to a surgeon and the surgeon, well, if they do it right, that's great. But if they don't, that's great too, because we still take a cut of the money. This mm. is this is where you have got a real problem because suddenly it's not about patient safety. It's not even about patient outcome. It's about, well, how much do we make this week? <laughs> and um, that's the, the, the profit motive in that respect cuts, it, it's, it's, it, it cuts across the motive of healing somebody and making somebody better. And um, all you need is a few people with the wrong attitude and you create a very nasty situation. Mm. It's often, um, I find it really interesting that healthcare is often compared to the aviation industry when it comes to safety and, you know, the, the differences in it. You know, nobody sort of gets on a plane and, and is worried about the safety side. You know, they do their checks every single time that plane is about to be flown. 
it doesn't matter how many years experience the pilot's got those checks happen before every single flight um and it's it's nature it's instilled it's habit it's that is what they have to do before that plane leaves the ground um and i find it really interesting that you know almost how can we get that same culture across the whole of healthcare that these safety checks and you know everything else should just become part of every day before you know no one should worry before they go into surgery that something is going to happen and you know things do go wrong of course they do but you know it shouldn't be a a negligence thing it should it you know there should be things in place that, that can stop that Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. And again, I think, you know, if the team were working together, then, you know, it would be so much nicer and clearer and easier for everybody to just know, yes, well, this is the checklist of the whole team. Yes, we have got everything that we could possibly need, including a good supply of the blood of the right type, just in case, you know, <laughs> and uh, just simple things that are life-saving if it comes to it but should just be that's okay that's fine <laughs> yeah there's um and in the the inquiry the the one of the the key quotes that stood out from me for um when they were obviously talking about patients and, and patients that had gone through this was we don't we do not want it to happen to anyone else that is the thing it's bad enough that it's happened already um and I think we've talked a lot today about the work that's been that has been done, the work that is being done, and you've got some ideas that I know we still need to address. Um, is there anything along those that you want to touch on a little bit now, and how you think that the future has to look to to determine that exactly what that quote just said that it doesn't happen to anybody else? Well, um, as as I was saying, I think a restructuring of the private healthcare sector. I think the the system of practicing privileges has to, to be changed uh, because I think that that is opening the door for exploitation. I think that there has got to be a proper level of responsibility and culpability, and there's got to be a really really well defined system. Um, in our case, you had one or two people who did try to say something about what was happening. Um, they spoke to certain levels of management, but those people didn't pass it on or didn't do anything with it when they received the information. And so I think that we have to have a very, very clear structure of how we communicate with each other, of who was responsible for what, and also we have to have a, a very clear idea of if something goes wrong, it's absolutely got to be dealt with. And so, you know, um, you know, in schools where you had the situation where for years and years, if somebody knew a colleague was abusing a child, they would not say anything because it was against what they considered to be their professional code. You don't say something about another colleague. But now you have mandatory reporting. So if you know that a child is being abused, it is on you to report it. And I think if we had mandatory reporting to make sure that um, no one can criticize you or bully you for saying something. It is everybody has got to say something. If they see something that is going wrong, if they see something that's being done wrong, then it, the onus is for them to say, right, I see that. We've got to stop this. We've got to you know, change that and so on. And so I think 
mandatory reporting is, is a really important thing that would help people to be able to feel secure and responsible in saying something rather than feeling oh, what if I'm betraying my colleagues if I say something yeah it comes back to that feeling that you can speak up transparency communication a lot of the things that that we've obviously talked about today um and I know it's obviously a very very sensitive subject that, that we're discussing today um and I really appreciate you coming on here to to share your experience with us um, and to to be using your experience as well and, and your survivor's experience for to inform positive change because I think that's such an important thing, you know, by speaking up yourself um, and by your survivors speaking up and, and everyone else, then that is hopefully how we are going to inform that change for, for the future. Um, I'd certainly like to think so anyway. <laughs> yes, I hope so, absolutely. Um, Sarah Jane, at the end of every episode, we ask everybody the same question. So we ask everybody what their what the health tech moment is. Um, and we've heard all sorts of amazing, funny, wonderful stories um, from people's experience across health and social care. So I'd like to ask you um, for the end of the episode, what is your what the health tech moment? Right. Okay. Thank you. Uh, well, um, I did the um, I did a talk at the Patient Safety Congress um, in two thousand and one, um, and while I was there, I met some fantastic people, and um, I. I I was invited by the Imperial Healthcare Trust to join them. They were doing um, uh, helping our teams transform things to, to look at how they could improve patient safety within the teams in, in their trust. And so I've joined quite a few sessions with them as just a sort of, you know, a, a patient representative. And one of the things that I felt was really profound is um, looking at the situation where we've spoken a lot about the team, um, but we usually think in terms of the clinicians, but the team is everybody. And when, when somebody has got to have life-changing ongoing treatment you know if someone is needing their chemotherapy because they have cancer and they have got a lot of appointments that they need to follow on one of the things that is really important is for that patient if she can phone up and she can speak to the person who is booking the appointments and she can say, you know, I've got to be able to fit this around my childcare, around my work. And if she can build up a relationship with the person who is booking those appointments and booking the treatment and making sure that person who is on the phone is just as important as any of the clinicians in the team. You know, um, they're all working together to ensure the outcome for that patient. And she is going to appreciate that person who can make sure that her needs are met with her appointments. She's going to value them just as much as the other members of the team. And I think that that's really important for people to see that, you know, everybody is working together. Everybody plays a really important part. And so, there shouldn't be a schism between the people who show up with the, you know, with the, the briefcases and everyone is like, wow, the consultant is here. The person who is answering the telephone, who is often getting shouted at, is also a vital part. And to the patient, you know, 
absolutely life and soul so um i think that's something we need to remember <laughs> i think that is a really lovely way to end this episode we've like you said we've, we've talked a lot um throughout the what is a sensitive subject um about you know people working together and, and the team and, and things like that and the support that other people can can give um whether it's other patients the whole medical staff the the team in general um so i think that's a really really lovely way to to end it and again thank you so much for coming on today and talking to us about your experience and the work that you're doing to to change this um thank you to everybody for listening um and join us um in a couple of weeks for another new episode don't forget to rate and subscribe. And if you've got any questions for us or our guests, including Sarah Jane, um, please email whatthehealthtech at radarhealthcare.com. Bye.